obviously I'm not Mark, uh, and I know you've guessed for the prayer marks unwell, and uh, so we've been asked to step in to the breach at short notice. Um, so the Take Your Stand series that we've been working on is going to be postponed this week. It's a comma, not a full stop, and it'll get picked up by, by Mark next week. So please bear with me, this is a, a sermon that's rather, it's not oven-baked as such, it's more been microwaved and fired in it. Uh, so we've had a few days at, at most to kind of work in this, so... <coughs> I think I'll say is that I, I uh, teach, and one of the things that became apparent to me early in my teaching career is you teach best that what you most need to learn. So if this is of any use to you this morning, you can be guaranteed that I've got a lot of work to do in myself. So, uh, <coughs> so I'm going to read for Philippians 3, and it's verses 3 through 12, and it's uh, from the CSB. And uh, the theme of the sermon is about gaining Christ and, and losing the world. So I think that idea is really captured in these verses. So it says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if any, <coughs> anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day in the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews regarding the law, a Pharisee regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was again to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based in faith. My goal is to know him in the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I somehow reached the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal, or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it, because I have been taken hold by Christ Jesus. Amen. So we see in verses 3 to 6 of the passage that Paul really cautions the Philippian church against having any confidence in the flesh. And he outlines his own failings in that regard. And if you look closely, you'll see that Paul lists what it is he considered to be a gain in life, and consequently what it is he valued most. So he stresses to the reader that his confidence in the flesh was predicated on uh, some of his achievements. And these were that he had strictly observed the law. He was the Pharisee's Pharisee. He was really seeking to be the best of the best in that regard that he devoted himself to God with zeal, and that manifest in him persecuting the church. And he considered himself to be righteous and blameless according to the interpretation of the law. And we see that in verse 7. So all the things that Paul had considered to be a gain in life, these are all the things that he considered of having value and worth. And I suppose then the passage really prompts us to ask ourselves what it is we consider to be of value and worth. How much value do we place on our achievements or the gains of the world? What is it we consider to be important to our own existence? And generally speaking, the things that are considered to be a gain and therefore of value in our culture function to elevate our pride and help us to form some sort of identity that we find acceptable to ourselves 
and, and we hope that other people will find acceptable. That's what we see in Paul's situation in these verses. He's seeking a claim. He wants status. He wants prestige. These are the things that he's driving for in order to elevate himself and get a claim for others. So we can ask ourselves then, <coughs> if that's true of Paul's situation, in what way is that true of your own situation? And if you're honest with yourself, you'll likely see similar themes in your own life. And our hearts were apt to covet and really crave the gains of the world, to feel satisfied in ourselves, and to grab some sense of security and worth. But it comes at a cost when we live with that. And the cost is that they lapse into destructive behaviours, they lapse into sinful behaviours, driven by the illusion that gaining the world is ultimately going to be the source of our salvation and our security. And the end result of that is that we become enslaved by selfishness, often at the expense of our soul. And that's what the Lord warns us about in Matthew 16, verse 26. He says, For what will it benefit someone if they gain the whole world, yet loses his life? And the driving force behind the desire for the gains of the world is fundamentally greed. We're captured by it and beguiled by it. And greed is defined by the author A.F. AF Robertson as the selfish desire to possess wealth, substances, objects, power, status, appreciation or attention far beyond what is required for basic human comfort. So greed cuts across a whole range of human desires and needs. Now, we could unpack all of those at depth, but for the sake of time and, and the purposes of this morning's talk, I'm just going to focus on one particular component, I agree, which is arguably the most cherished, and that is the love of money, or desire for wealth. So, if any of you have seen the 1980s movie Wall Street, you'll know that the, the character Gordon Greco makes the famous statement, greed is good. And if you think in that decade in particular, it's synonymous with greed. You know, we see Thatcherism, we see yuppie culture, we see things like privatisation, people becoming millionaires overnight. But that still, it still remains a common vice in our culture. And we've seen that vividly illustrated back in 2008 when the financial crisis struck. It wreaked havoc in the world. Self-indulgence, greed, selfishness caused un unparalleled problems to, to manifest in our lives and there was a lot of investigations into what happened, what triggered that crisis and what they've been able to show that it was triggered by pure uh, regulation of financial systems, excessive lending and borrowing, banks were just giving people money that they could not afford to repay, incompetent credit rating agencies, people were getting loans that should have never received them and it was just poor corporate governance. It was preventable and it need not have happened, but it was driven by people's lust for money eh, and driven by greed. And the after effects of that crisis were profound, they really were. You know, that we entered into a recession that had not been seen, there had been nothing like it. Overnight, people's homes were repossessed, unemployment eh, just morphed, businesses closed, there was a debt crisis. But the biggest thing to come to that was the austerity programs that were implemented throughout the Western world. And they really led to widespread human suffering. In a UK context, disabled people and children were the most affected. They really felt the brunt of the welfare changes that occurred. 
And you can still see that's been felt today. I don't know if anyone's watched Question Time, but the boss Iron Rice on Supermarket was on it last year. And he made the point that in the UK there's now more food banks than there is McDonald's restaurants. And you can't drive two minutes without seeing a McDonald's. And that really just hits home the scale of the poverty problem that's now in, the, now in Britain. And it can be de directly linked back to the events of 14 years ago. So what we can know for sure is that greed's got the potential to cause profound human suffering. That impacts at each and every one of us. <coughs> so there's a social psychologist, his name's Eric Fromm, and he tries to, uh, he defines greed as a bottomless pit that exhausts the person in an en endless effort to satisfy the need without ever reaching satisfaction. So greed's very subtle and elusive. It's like an itch you can't scratch. You just can never get rid of it. You can never really satisfy it. Uh, and we see that truth played out in the scriptures as well. If you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 10, it says, The one who loves money is never satisfied with money, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. So when we're captured with that, we can never get enough. It's always going to be a... And actually, you can just never really satisfy so greed and the love of money sits opposed to God and it's rightly considered a primary sin. And that's because the love of money can easily dominate your heart and it can cause immense suffering. So it's especially cautioned against within the scriptures. So <coughs> we see that in Matthew 6.24 it says, No one can serve two masters since he'll either hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But if we're really honest with ourselves this morning, who, who in the room, and I include me in that, can deny the pull of greed in our own heart at some level? And in one level, you might, you might recognise psychologically that there's a futile chasing the fool's gold. But is that really reflected in the way that you live? Do we profess our love for Christ? and our hearts pursue the perceived gains to the material world? Are the teachings of Christ really deeply embedded in your heart and profoundly affecting your interactions with the world? Or are they just platitudes that we agree with psychologically but don't really have a direct bearing in how we lead our lives? So they're difficult questions, but if you really look at that honestly, it will reveal as who you're actually serving. Is it Christ or is it the world? So if I'm being candid, you know, the pull of greed is never far from my heart. It just never is. It constantly whispers. It demands my attention. It vies for my love. So we may wonder, why is it? Why does it have such a grip on us? So there's been research done by uh, a guy called Dr. G. Van de Souza, and he's looked at the causes of greed, why it, is, it has such a pull on us. And he suggests that it's the outcome of human dissatisfaction, emptiness, and discontentment. And he suggests that in order to avoid the negative emotions that come in up, we're motivated to acquire resources, admiration, and power. But it's often at the expense of our own happiness and other people's. And that sentiment's captured perfectly. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie The, the Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, but there was a New York broker called Jordan Belford, and he's been made famous by Leonardo DiCaprio uh, through that movie. But he, tweet, he tweets to his followers, this is what he says in a tweet, 
I want you to deal with your problems by becoming rich. You know, the idea that money can fix us, it can give us satisfaction, it can give us contentment, we can escape suffering if we just acquire enough. And that's just a really deeply embedded idea within our culture. But what he fails to mention in his tweet is that that will be potentially the demise of your own happiness. It certainly will have an impact on other people's ha- happiness because, as we know, it leads to suffering. So the truth is that we're easily swayed by the love of money and other aspects of the flesh because they seem to promise an escape to pain and suffering. And as I say, that's deeply ingrained in our culture. We see that idea playing out in commercial bricks. We see it in the Tesco when folk are queuing for the lottery. We see it in the fact that people play the football pools. I don't know if anybody still does that, but they used to anyway. Uh, but we're always seeking to get something because they think there's a better life to be had or there's happiness to be had in it. So money and materialisms are, are promoted as a solution to the pain of life. The new car, the house, the coat, the holiday, they all seem to promise us some form of salvation, but they never satisfy in the long term. But billions, and I mean billions, are spent annually in advertising to convince you the truth in our lie. But that worldview is in direct opposition to the teachings of Christ. Here's what he says in Luke twelve fifteen. He then told them, Watch out and be in the guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of possessions. And he then goes on to tell the, the parable with the rich fool. And he reminds us in that about the futility of accumulating wealth. And he cautions us that in our final moments, we will find that our devotion to money was in vain. So, it is too late by then. So the Lord really, really stresses and compels us not to be beguiled by the promises of this world, and to instead speak spiritual blessings which have a higher and internal value. And that's the essence of his teaching in Matthew 6, verse 19 to 21. Don't store up treasures, uh, yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it really is no exaggeration uh, to say that a life used to pursue uh, the gains of this material world is a life wasted. And the truth is that the gains of this world separate us from God and they keep our soul from Christ. So if we're going to spend our time pursuing these gains, it's just such a gross misuse of our time here on earth, the earth that's been gifted to us by the Father. But it doesn't need to be that way. It really doesn't. And we do have a choice in it. We can make decisions. So how might we do that? If we look at verses 7 and 8 of this morning's passage, Paul begins to encourage us to take a different path. He says, But everything that was again to me I consider to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as done so that I may gain the world. I may gain Christ, sorry. So in these verses, Paul eh, emphasises that he's renounced everything that he, that he believed to have value in his life so that he may 
again Christ. And for him, all that he cherished and all that he strives to after has become dung in his eyes. So we encounter a man whose value system has been undergone a complete reversal. There's a profound shift in how he sees the world. Prior to knowing the Lord, Paul spent all of his time and putting all his time and energy into becoming a Pharisee in the belief that that would, that would save him. But we read in here that the trajectory of his life has undergone a radical transformation to the extent that he now devotes all his time and energy to pursuing Christ. That's what energizes him and that's what motivates him. So Paul's chosen to give up his former life and all the advantages he had been at to suffer for the sake of Christ. And to the eyes of the world, that would have seemed foolish. Why would you let go of everything in order to pursue Christ? But for Paul, there is no greater value than knowing the Lord. That is what he ultimately, that is the gain for him now. He's let it go, he's gained Christ and let go of the world. So the Lord has become his source of satisfaction. The Lord has become his source of contentment. It is the Lord that fills him. And it's through that contentment and relationship with the Lord that he can let go of the world. So how does that profound shift happen in your heart? How is it a guy who had all, everything that would have been needed to be successful in life seemingly, decide to say this is rubbish, I no longer want it? So we find the answer to that within verses eh, 9 to 12, and it says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God and faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead, not that I have already reached the goal or I am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. So when we look at verses nine to twelve, we see that there's two key aspects of Paul's heart that have been changed, and it's something that we can seek to emulate in our own lives. So that Paul has set his heart upon Christ as his righteousness, and we see that in verse nine and ten. And Paul has his heart upon heaven as his happiness. And that is captured in verse 11. And when we look at verse 9 in particular, it's just really a sharp reminder that we cannot stand before God in the basis of our worldly gains or achievements. In the end, anything we gain in this world, absolutely anything we gain in this world, will be no value in God's kingdom. Therefore, we need to recognise that there's no higher value than knowing the Lord and being in relationship with Him. Verse 9 is a reminder that none of us can save ourselves, no matter how much money, possessions, acclaim, status, prestige you gain in this world. It will not help you in the end. It's the righteousness of Christ, which is available to us all through faith in him, that is our only source of salvation. And that's what Paul is telling us here. So our hope should be in Christ and not in the world, and the knowledge that our salvation is in him and not in anything in this world. So like Paul, he's encouraging us to reconfigure the priorities in our own lives so that our hearts are set upon the righteousness of Christ and so that our hearts are set upon heaven as our happiness 
that's where we need to be uh, pushing our priorities. <coughs> so how how do we help to do this? If you look at verse 10, it says, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So in these verses, Paul arguably outlines the four most important priorities in the Christian life. And he gives us guidance on how we should attune our hearts so that we can let go of the world and gain Christ. So the first priority that he suggests is that we desire to know Christ. The second priority is, is that we desire to know the power of Christ's resurrection. The third priority is that we desire to share in the sufferings of Christ. And the fourth is, is that we desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. So let's, let's go through each of them. So if we look at point one, we, that we desire to know Christ. So here we see that Paul's deepest desire is to gain a relationship with Christ and to know him intimately. So let me ask you this this morning. To what extent do you share in that desire? How much time have you spent with Jesus this week? How often have you read the scriptures this week? How often have you prayed this week? How often have you meditated what this week? How much time have you spent reading books or even listening to podcasts that help to strengthen your faith or to help you grow in your understanding? Now compare that with the time you're spent pursuing the things of the world and what is the balance? What has really grabbed your attention this week? Has it been the world or has it been Christ? Where has your heart been focused? If we ignore the Lord in favour of our concerns, then our relationship with him will suffer. We see that dynamic play out in our other relationships. If you don't give your children attention, or your spouse attention, or your friends attention, or your parents attention, these relationships become strained and they suffer. So why would it be any different? So if we want to know the Lord, then we need to be prepared to spend time with him and to make that a priority in our lives. It has to be the centre of our lives, otherwise our relationship will weaken uh, and will become disconnected. If we look at priority two, it says the desire to know we desire to know the power of Christ's resurrection. So here Paul stresses the justifying and life giving power of the resurrection. And he underlines the fact that if we know Jesus <coughs> the fact that we know Jesus and have faith in him, we can look forward to a time when we will be with him. That is the prize promised by God and it is ultimately our great hope. Our great hope. When you think about suffering, we probably think about death as being the worst thing that can happen. Even that does not get the last word when we've got faith in Christ. So nothing in this life compares with that great truth. There's nothing a higher value. Through faith in Christ we are saved. And therefore, we've already gained all that we'll ever need. So consequently, the gains of the world, including money or anything else of the flesh, should be of secondary importance. In the long run, there's nothing that we can gain in this world that will help us. So there's nothing in this world that's worthy of your hopes. If we look at point three, it says that we desire to share in the sufferings of Christ. 
So Paul makes us aware that to be in relationship with Jesus is a desire to share in the sufferings of Jesus. So the truth is, is that if we desire to share in the glory of Christ, then we must desire or be prepared to share in his sufferings. But you should take heart, you know, provided by the fact that we know Jesus, and uh, we have a desire to uh, share in the, the power of his resurrection, we'll be empowered to bear with any suffering that we're called to endure, with patience and courage. In fact, you might come to see suffering as something positive in your life, because our natural reaction is to try and repel it. But if we neglect our relationship with the Lord, if we neglect priority one and two, it's likely that we'll be unable to resist the temptation to seek sanctuary from the pain of life through monetary gain or material gain or any aspect of the flesh. We'll flee to them. We'll seek short-term relief from temporary troubles and the things of the world. But that will ultimately invite further pain and misery into your life. And the end result of that is a sense of disconnection from the Lord as we begin to traverse a spiritual wilderness. So let me give you an example of how reliance on the things of the world can cause spiritual alienation and compound your pain. So due to my, my own experience, I've got a keen interest in addiction. And one of the things we know about people who use alcohol and drugs habitually, it's not to have a good time, it's to self-medicate. It's a solution to suffering, which generally, that suffering generally manifests and feelings of anxiety, discontentment, worry, eh, emptiness. These are the things that the addict is living with. And they ingest substances to kill that pain. It's self-medicating. Now there's lots of research into addiction and there's many reasons cited why, why people develop addictions. And that's a lot of stuff to do with social economic factors, biological factors, psychosocial factors. And all of them have a place in understanding addiction. They really, really do. But undergirding all of these issues, I believe, is the primary cause, which is our separation from God. One of the things I encountered early in my own recovery was a letter eh, that Carl Jung, famous psychologist, famous psychotherapist, had written to Bill Wilson, who was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Eh, and in this letter, eh, Young uh, suggests, uh, tells Bill Wilson about, they're discussing a guy, a mutual acquaintance, who Young had treated for addiction. And, uh, and here is what Young said concerning the person he treated for alcoholism. He says his craving for alcohol was the equivalent in a low level of the spiritual thirst of a, a being for wholeness expressed in the medieval language, the union with God. So for the young, you know, people with addiction issues, it's partly about killing the pain, but it's partly some attempt to be unified with the divine. And he goes on to explain why he thinks that's the case. He says, you see, alcohol in Latin is spiritus, and you use the same word for the highest religious experience, as well as for the most depraving poison. The helpful formula, therefore, is spiritus contra spiritum. So what Young was getting at was that alcoholics or addicts use, use spirits to treat a spiritual void and has a hard life. 
It made the person's personal pain rooted in the separation from God go away. But ultimately it goes on to destroy their life. You might be familiar with that feeling. Emptiness. Discontentment. And look to the world to solve that. But what we're really craving is a relationship with God. So there'll be many here this morning that don't have problems with addiction. But I wonder if there's other things you're using in this world to self-medicate. Is it money? Is it a job? Is it buying things you don't really need just for the fur of it? And what way are you using this things of the world to circumvent or avoid the pain in your life? And if that is the case, if you are doing that, then please be encouraged that Paul in these verses gives us an alternative option. He encourages us to desire to know the Lord, to be unified with him, to find that union. And when we're unified with him, we can be dependent on him for our strength and our hope during times of suffering or challenge. So you do not need to face the pain of life alone but you need to cultivate your relationship with the Lord and you really need to make him the centre of your life and if we're in union with the Lord he'll shield our hearts for the pull of the world and he'll empower us to face the trials of life with hope and courage and faith and if we're in union with the Lord we can then be empowered to embrace the pain and suffering of life without the talk to sin so you can take comfort from the knowledge that if we desire to know the Lord, He'll provide us with all that we need to face suffering, with patience and courage. But we can also be encouraged that although we'll share in the Lord's suffering, we will one day share in His glory. So no matter what you're facing today, if you're really in the mire, please know this too shall pass. And one day you'll be at home with the Lord. It's all temporary. And if you seek after Him and you're unified with Him, you will get through it. He is here and he's with you. Let's look at the promise given to us, Paul, in Romans 6, 5. And it says, For we have been united with him in his likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So we can be encouraged to leave the, the pains of this world behind and the knowledge that whilst we'll endure suffering and sacrifice for his sake, in the end it's worth it. In the end it's worth it. Because we're promised a prize by God in the heavenly realm. Our hope lies ahead. So that's the hope that encourages. That's the hope that sustains us. That's the hope that can bring us joy. Regardless of the challenges we'll face in this life. Let me give you an example of somebody who I think embraced these, these kind of priorities Paul talks about. Uh, and it's Charles Wesley. So this is someone who gained Christ and let go of the world. So, Wesley was one of the founding members of the Methodist movement, along with his brother and George Whitfield. And during the 18th century, the sale of his books was significant and earned him over a thousand shillings a year. I don't know what that means in today's money, but it's a lot of money. Let's just say that. But what he did is he used all the profits he gained for selling his books for charity. He kept money and he really encouraged Christians to engage in social reform. So before his conversion, uh, when he lived in Oxford, he had an income of 30 shillings per year. And he worked out that he only needed 28 to, to live. 28 shillings a year, that's what he needed. 
So what he did is he gave the other two away. By the time he was making a thousand shillings a year, you can guess where this is going. He was still only 11 and 28. He gave it all away. He wasn't interested in it. Uh, so he just relied on this very small proportion of his income. He seen it as having no value and he wanted it to give it away in a spirit of generosity and service to the Lord. So it was very, very clear. When we look at Wesley's life, his contentment's in Christ. He's known the world. He's quoted as saying this, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. If I leave behind me ten pounds, you and all man- mankind bear witness against me that I have lived and died a thief and a robber. So, like, like Paul, Wesley's goal was to know Jesus intimately and to share in his sacrificial love for others. His eyes were fi- fixed in a higher prize. They really were. He was certainly of no interest in the gains of this world. So if we share in the desire of Wesley to know Christ and to share in his sufferings, then we too can make good decisions about our need for material resources and money. That's Paul's calling us to do, to reprioritize our lives, to reprioritize our values, to look to the gain of Christ as being the ultimate worth and the ultimate value, and take what we need for this world, but do not be dependent on it for your sense of worth and your identity. So if we're able to do that in faith, we can consider how much it is we really need to live on. And we can use our money as a blessing to other people in the service to the Lord. And if we do that, we mirror the Christ there, the life of Christ, whose life was absent at any desire for earthly possessions. You know, the Lord had no office, he had no home, he had no money. Jesus was a person who rejected everything that's considered a gain in this world. And instead he embraced, embraced a life of hardship and difficulty in order to help other people. And that's ultimately the life that we are asked to lead, or called to lead. You know, a life characterised by radical gen- generosity, service and sacrifice for others. And when we look to our Lord, we see this idea of generosity, service and sacrifice vividly illustrated in, in Mark 14.36. And we find Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane asking the, the Lord uh, God to spare him his fate. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not that I will, but that you will. And when we read the words, you can see that Jesus is in pain and he's scared. He's terrified about what's going to come. But he's acutely aware that God's plan is for his life. So despite the fear, despite the, 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 the tremendous suffering he's going through, he demonstrates perfect obedience to God's will. Because he realised that his role in the world was that for a suffering servant. I'm going to read to Isaiah 53, uh, verses 3 to 6, and I just love this scripture, and it just really encapsulates how, how, how Jesus was, was seen by the world. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and they didn't value him. Yet he bore our sicknesses, he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. Because he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed by our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by 
his wounds. So we find Jesus is someone the most highest. There's a person in the most highest. Willingly accepting complete obedience to descend into the lowest pit for the sake of us. That is love unparalleled. And despite his standing with God, Jesus doesn't ask to be spared his fate. But he embraces that suffering for the sake of others. It's the ultimate act of love, generosity and service. And what the Lord asks of us is to follow that example in our own lives. We see it in Matthew 16, 24. He says, Then Jesus said to the disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So that's, as a Christian, we're asked to, to mirror that life, to mirror that sacrifice, to give generously, to forgo the world, and to lead a life that's obedient to the world. But none of these are perfectly generous. I'm certainly not. None of these are perfectly loving. I'm certainly not that. Uh, and I'm certainly not perfectly sacrificial. Indeed, Paul himself isn't, and he acknowledges his own shortcomings concerning uh, these matters in verse 12 of this morning's passage. Nevertheless, we are expected, with the help of the Spirit, <coughs> to make uh, effort to improve in these aspects of our character. Indeed, that's the basis of point four, the fourth priority, which Paul urges to the desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. Therefore, based on the biblical instruction to deny yourself and take up the cross and service to her, let me outline four areas of your life in which you could forgo the gains of the world in service to the Lord. These are taken for a, a cross and study unit we looked at uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and as I go through them, try to consider where maybe greed is a potential issue for you. Uh, or, or maybe it's something you can let go of with the Lord's help to, to serve other people. So the first thing is time. So in the modern world, times I value commodity. I'm always busy. I don't have a lot of time. And uh, you know, in a hustle or bustle of life, can really feel that we've got a poverty of time. Uh, so we're, we're apt to really guard that cautiously and, uh, and we're reluctant to give time to people, particularly if we don't know them, particularly for strangers. You know, it's a temptation to say, I'm just too busy to speak to that person or go and see them. So that's certainly an area of life where any is could be sacrificial. How much time are you really giving to people uh, in service to the Lord? You know, so how much time are you really committing to people, particularly people out with your immediate circle? And could you be doing more in that area? So it's something to think about. The other area of our life where we could be sacrificial is affection. It's common feature of relationships that we tend to gravitate towards people uh, who we like or who we've got similar interests with or similar values. And that's the kind of glue that binds people together and helps us to form relationships. I'm being honest, I'm not particularly generous with my affections. Uh, I can, uh, I'm pretty introverted. Uh, I'm pretty uh, guarded, I suppose. And I'm particularly like that if I've got a sense somebody doesn't like me. Or that they've got a different worldview or a different value base for me. Or kind of it shields up. Uh, so I'm stingy with my love. I'm stingy with my affection. Uh, but again, that's a limited form of love. 
and it's certainly no reflective of what the Lord's calling us to do. So the odds with the instructions of Jesus, and it's, he says clearly in Luke 6, 31, and if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. So something about giving our affection away is an act of service, it's an act of generosity, and it's definitely something that I can be doing better, but possibly you could be as well. Thirdly, is our home, and uh, you know, home's where the heart is, as the saying goes, and uh, like we're maybe reluctant to share our affections, maybe we're reluctant to share our home with people and use it as a blessing. Uh, I think part of the issue is that, you know, this idea that home is a sanctuary, it's a place where we shut the world out, and we just close the doors and leave it behind, and uh, so it's a form of refuge, uh, and, and that maybe means that we're less motivated to let folk in. But Paul tells us a real sanctuary is the of the Lord. He says, don't you know that you are God's sanctuary and the Spirit of God lives in you? That's in the 3.16. So if we realise that real sanctuary is found in the Lord, then we don't need to cling so tightly to our home. And we wisdom and discernment, not just saying open the doors, uh, but we wisdom and discernment, you know, you can, we can use our home to bless other people. Uh, and again, it's just another form of generosity that we can show in our lives. And lastly, resources. And that could be using small things. It's no necessarily saying you need to run out and throw your money away this morning, but uh, we can do it in other ways. We can share equipment, we can share books, we can give generously uh, with our money. Uh, you know, there's just loads of things that we could share out. And that approach to life really points to a gospel centered community. That should be evident in any church family. Uh, and they see it in the early church. It says in Acts 4.32, how the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. So it is worth thinking, about how much do you cling to your possessions? Or is your identity so rooted in these things that you, you've hard to share them out? And if so, that's certainly something we could look to, to improve. So just to close with, you know, these are all areas that could demonstrate generosity for other people. But as I say, our willingness to do that will be determined how content we are in Christ. And if we continue to remain uh, influenced by our individualistic culture, we'll remain in prison by greed. It will be a prison that we find hard to break out of. And what happens is we retreat into our individual silos, disconnected from the Lord and disconnected from people. And we just cling to things that we feel feed our identity. That's where we're drawing our sense of worth from. And we're fearful about letting it go. But when we do, we close the door in a richer and fuller life. A life rooted in the Lord. A life rooted in community. And a life rooted in love. Jesus solves that for us. He, loves, he offers us love and acceptance on a scale that we cannot begin to make sense of. But he asks us to strive to do this. It's through faith based in the power of the resurrection that we open the door for others to receive saving faith in Christ Jesus. And he tells us if we do that, if we prioritise that, we prioritise him and we prioritise that service, then the reward for that will get be great. We'll be with him in eternity. So we don't need to seek the treasures of this life. 
And if you do that, you're really eating for the scraps of the table. You're really eating for the scraps of the table. When Jesus has promised us there's a feast, there's a big buffet forthcoming. So put your hope in him and not the world. Love others boldly and generously. Make that the priority of your life. So we're just going to close with prayer, but before we do that, I want you to invite you to the table to just show your faith and your hope in Jesus. And as you come to take the bread in the cup, I would just urge you to remember what it means. That through Jesus' sacrifices, shown as the purest, the purest form of generosity that there's ever been, his death on the cross was the ultimate act of love. Not only for you, for everyone, all strangers, so that we could be reconciled by God, eh, with God, sorry, and welcome into his kingdom. And if you're not a Christian, I would invite you to find a gain in Christ, to let go of the world, and to put your hopes in him. And we would be delighted to hear from you, if that's the case, if you want to eh, chat that through further. So folks, let me pray. So Father, we thank you for your word and your faithfulness. You have shown his mercy and grace, that even in the midst of our failures and our shortcomings, you have remained resolute in your love for us. And Father, I would try to pray that in view of your mercy, each and every one of us here today would be led to serve sacrificially. May we never be distracted or distracted from offering service to others as a consequence of our ego, our pride, or our self-interest, or our a desire to gain the world nation may be the cornerstone which underpins our, our service to others. And yes, Father, I just pray that you would use our individual and our collective gifts so that we can serve others uh, and you would help us to show true generosity for everyone who may cross our path. Uh, may our affection for others always be authentic and self-serving. May our love for others always be sincere and reflect the love you have shown us. Uh, these things in Jesus' name. Amen.